Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times, John Cross of the Daily Mirror, and just off the Eurostar, Rich Laverty, writer and broadcaster on women's football. We'll look at managerial moves and transfer machinations later, but it's been a landmark month for the women's game. Huge audiences, new stars, new horizons. Now, Rich, you've been right amongst it the past month. How big has this World Cup been? It's been big in France. Um, it's obviously hard. For, it's always strange when you're away because you can't gauge what it's like back home. You just hear the, you know, we got the figures coming in after every game. It was going up six million, eight million, and I think, you know, ten million for the, the semi-final and above. So in France, it was big. You know, the the French really got behind it. Um, I think some of the cities could probably have done a bit more to promote things. Um, the, the the larger cities, the smaller cities, really pushed it. You know, the ones that probably needed a bit more of the tourism. Um, the final was great because it was the US against Netherlands. The US had thousands, thousands and thousands of fans out there. It was almost like a home game. And it was the same against England. Um, and the Netherlands had their support. So the atmospheres were great. Um, it was uh, The French, like I said, really got behind it. I think they could have probably done more in terms of promotion. But in terms of the, the fans and the, the worldwide viewing figures, um, it was the biggest we've had yet. Yeah. So that begs the question... What comes next? What should come next? Well, I mean, that's up to us now because we're hosting the next major tournament in 2021 and obviously with the Tokyo Olympics next year, it's down to us now and the FA to really push it. And, you know, with the league now, you've got the Manchester Derby on the opening day, you've got Chelsea playing Tottenham um, at Stamford Bridge. We've got to now do those things. There's been talk of double headers with men's sides. More than anything, we've just got to get people interested. You know, you, you you can get 11 million people watching a semi-final, but you're only getting 1,000 people coming out to WSL games. You think, you think you must be able, out of that 11 million, to garner, you know, 10,000 people that want to come and watch the WSL every week. So that's what we've got to do now. We've got to make sure that in 2021 we have that attention. We have the people, you know, marching down the streets like the Netherlands fans were and the French fans were. And there's a lot of work to be done. You know, there can be so much more promotion. Um, of women's football. There's been talk of the Premier League taking it over. Um, whether that will happen or not, I'm not sure. I don't think it will happen yet anyway. So we just got to keep building on what we do and, and maximise every opportunity we've got to promote women's football because it doesn't end now that the World Cup's done. I think having Tokyo next year as well will be a big thing because, you know, everybody watches the Olympics. Because that's the key, isn't it, Johnny? You know, we've been around you know, men's sport long enough to know that it's bedeviled by politics. Mm. So let's take the, the Olympics as a case in point. Phil Neville is going to be the, the women's manager of the Team GB. Um, the Scotland captain has already said, yes, she wants to play for a Team GB. But there are still the backwoodsmen saying, can't do that. Are we in danger that the people in the suits will get in the way of the ambitions of young professional women's footballers who deserve the Olympics as a stage? It's... It's a difficult one from a Scottish point of view. Yeah. It's That's hot, why I asked you. It's a hot potato, <laughs> I know. I mean, my personal thought is, and starting point for all of this, is actually the men's and the women's game are different and there's no problem in seeing them as such. And I, I'm very pleased that, that it does look like Scottish players and Welsh players will play at the Olympics for the women's team because that is a pinnacle of their sport going to the Olympics. It's probably bigger than the, the World Cup, potentially, and they should be allowed to experience that um, the, of course, the Scottish argument against it happening is a historical one that goes back to Scotland, the home nations being 
independent nations in the eyes of FIFA. I, I, I do get that, but you know, I, I, the idea that FIFA are going to suddenly cancel the Scottish national team on the basis that a few Scottish women have played at the Olympics is frankly ridiculous, and I think there's a recognition it's ridiculous. I mean, you then would, would then talk about the men's level and, and should it happen at, at men's level. Again, personally, I've got no problem with it, with it happening, but it is a more difficult debate. I, th I think what this whole thing comes down to, though, is that the, the people in power in football need to probably understand the women's game better because mm. it isn't the men's game. It's a, it's a different product um, which has got brilliant, um, strong points that stand alone, stand separate to the men's game. And we shouldn't be comparing them all the time. And we also shouldn't be trying to impose on the women's game the same solutions, I suppose, that happen in the men's game. And I think until the people in charge, the suits, if you like, mm. have a deeper understanding, or indeed more of them come from the women's game, that's the real key. Yeah, because I, I, I always get nervous when you get um, Infantino coming out and saying, OK, off the back of a, a fashionable World Cup, if you like. Well, we're going to go to 32 teams next time, so you're going to expand it. OK, I'll put the, I'll put the, uh, uh, the prize money out from 30 to 60 million. Well, the men's game is 440 million, if you want to make a commercial comparison. To Johnny's point, FIFA need to understand, don't they, that the women's game is at a delicate stage of its development and it needs looking after rather than just exploiting it. Yeah, absolutely it does. I mean, I think part of the success of, of the World Cup just gone, if you like, it, it was the quality of the football. Mm. And, and I just think that the obvious thing is whenever you expand a, a tournament, I, I just think that's probably a good long-term vision. Mm. But actually, you're, you're going to invite some teams that weren't arguably good enough you know, to, to qualify this time around. Mm. So you, you've got to accept that I think there's got to be a fine balancing act and a long-term project, really. And I think that basically, I mean, it's rather like the men's, isn't it? The mm. men's has fought back against kind of the, mm. the sort of rather, you know, curtailed that vision about an expanded World Cup. And I would say that the biggest single factor about getting too ahead of yourselves is you have to keep it an attractive, you know, viable... Uh, product, and I hate using that word in football, but it's true, really, on, on this occasion. And I think Emma Hayes was really interested in basically in her vision of kind of, you know, taking uh, the WSL to, to Premier League grounds mm. and saying it, it's a pointless exercise if you're suddenly going from, you know, trying to sort of build up, you know, crowds of an average of 1,000 into 3,000, because 3,000 at Stamford Bridge mm. is just not mm. going to work. Mm. It's got to be a fine balancing act. The double headers is a really good idea in my view, but what you know, I wrote something about that last week, and, and r quite rightly, mm. the first replies you get is basically, if you do that around Premier League games, what about the loyal fans? You know, the, the thousand, the two thousand, so fans, getting yeah. into yeah. Mm. getting into the Premier League games because that's mm. effectively what they'd have yeah. to do. Mm. So they've been sort of through thick and thin at, at sort of you know at Bournemouth and wherever it might be. And, you know, all of a sudden they're effectively excluded. I think you've got to get the balance right between the quality being maintained. You've got to give, I think, tomorrow's generation, this is really important in my view, not just the opportunity to watch it on telly, which is massive, and the fact is that it's been there and we've all enjoyed it and it's been very accessible, but you've got to get the, the next generation in, into games because... I don't know about you guys, but my, my, I fell in love with football mm. when, I, when I basically went to football. And that's the key, isn't it? Mm. And the kind of, you know, you've got to make women's football accessible. It's there, it's in stadia, and you've got to be able to go. So it's a, it's a really important time. And all of those, you know, matters, I think, come into the mix right now. Mm, yeah, we talked about Emma Hayes at Rich. You know, she's, for me, a hugely impressive figure. And she <clears> has clout within the football club in general at Chelsea. Chelsea, you know, as you mentioned, are going to play their first game of the season at Stamford Bridge. It's a Sunday lunchtime kickoff against you know a local rival. You know, the likelihood is it will be free tickets for anyone who wants to turn up. You can only do that so often, can't you? You can, yeah. And I've never been a fan of the fact that we just throw free tickets at fans. We do it for the FA Cup finals and. You know, it's great to see Wembley have, you know, 40,000, 50,000 people in, but you always just think how many people have actually mm. bought tickets, mm. you know. And, and the other issue is as well, 
you know, for England matches, they played at the City Academy for the World Cup, which is only a 7,000-seater stadium. And they, they made a big deal of it weeks in advance. It was sold out. And, and people said, you know, great, because it, it's nice to have, even if it is a 7,000-seater stadium, it's nice to have them sold out. And on the night, there was 5,500 people there. And because you're giving them away for free and so cheaply, it's easy for people to just say, oh, do you know what, I've got other things to do, or I just don't fancy it. And then you look stupid, because we, then in the media, we all say, well, hang on a minute, where's those 1,500 people gone to? And it's been the same at Stamford Bridge, or, you know, if the Manchester derbies that they had, they'll brief, you know... 30,000 tickets, 40,000 tickets, and then 20,000 people turn up or something. And you think, well, because if you give them away for free, and it's not sustainable, you know, these teams are not making profits. Not many of them are making profits. They've got to start making their money somehow. I was at a conference in Lyon on, on Friday, and there was a director from Lewis there who came into the championship last season, and he said, you know, we, quad we, sorry, we trebled our ticket prices but they quadrupled their attendances mm. at the same time because they had a product to get out. They got families involved. They made it accessible for, for families, for children, and people paid to go, and they still improved their attendances. So, you know, if Lewis can do it, why can't Chelsea, Arsenal, Manchester City and, and Manchester United do it? I, I, I agree with that because I think, I think Rich is right that it's, it's got to be an organic growth. Mm. Um, I, I take my girls sometimes to Leicester City women, and I've taken my eldest daughter to Leicester City men, it's vastly different, a vastly different experience. Both great experiences in different ways, but what you can't even tell a six-year-old girl that watching the women's team is the same as watching the men's team. Because you go watch the women's team, it's at Quorn, it's, 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 it's brilliant, it's like going to watch, well, it is like watching non-league football, but it's 250 people, two quid to get in. Um, you know, you can, you can buy a drink and walk around the perimeter. It's a completely different vibe, and it's, it's very... Family orientated, very friendly, completely different to going to the King Power with 30,000 fans and, and, and the noise and all that entails. And my worry about just almost dumping women's games straight into Premier League stadiums right now would be that it, it's, it's a different product and it would be pushing it, I think, too far, too, too fast. The, you know, without making any bones about it, the, the standard of football is a huge disparity. Leicester City women are um, championship, so we're, you know we're not talking about the top level, but there's some pretty pretty good players in the women's game there. But it's it's not the same as watching the men's game, and I think we have to be realistic about what is actually being sold to people, but also concentrate on the fact that what is being sold is great. It's it's different. It's but it, it can be different in a great way yeah. and build organically. Clubs like Lewis have done a, a fantastic job. And as Rich said, if you just start giving away free tickets and trying to get 30,000 people to, to watch, you might not engage those people for any length of time because they might come along expecting to see the exact equivalent of the men's game, mm. see something different and walk away. Mm. But I suppose the product, you know, we, I think we all agree, is a very good one now. From your perspective, John, you know, lifetime watching the game, what do you think are the defining characteristics of, of, of a good women's game? Oh, I think the technique, the technique was really impressive this time. I, I just, I just, I, I felt the, the tournament really was, was obviously dominated by, by the US. And, and, and watching the game yesterday, for, for example, it was... It was just so obvious that they were on a different level, I think, to everyone else. And I think whichever way you paint it, really, the Dutch, you know, plucky and brave and, and that sort of patronising sort of comments like that, really. Um, because I just felt that the, sort of the US have that... They have that level which everyone else is striving towards. Yeah. And it's just obvious that, that basically I felt that it was a fabulous advert, the whole, you know, the whole tournament, I thought, to, to show to everyone that this is very, very watchable. It's very appealing. It's, you know, I think that the, the tournament w was played out, you know, it was on terrestrial TV, warm summer evenings, warm summer, you know, Sunday afternoons sometimes when the games were on. You could sit there and watch it with your family and it's very, very it was very, very accessible and very, very watchable. Tactically very astute, you know, very, very good technically, as I say. It was it was competitive, it, it sort of kind of showcased everything that was good, say from from you know, from really good players from 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 England's team, you know, the 
um, sort we've of bronze got a, and Paris. But you we've know, got a part of credibility, yeah. hasn't it, John? That that you have to be critical as well. Because that comes yeah. from the territory. And you I just can't pat people on the head and say, oh, it's mm. wonderful. If there are things wrong, I think people have got to highlight Yeah, and I thought that, that was, it was really noticeable, I think, during the tournament and before the tournament, quite a few England players were sort of saying that. We want, yeah. we want yeah. that level of criticism. And what I would say was that I thought the most disappointing aspect of it, in, in, in frankly, in, in watching the England team in particular, because you, you know, mm. that, that's what... Someone like me does, I guess, in sort of kind of, you know, and so was so excited about seeing the semi-final. I thought the semi-final was, was a hugely disappointing mm. um, sort of game, I have to say, for, from an English perspective. You know, I don't know whether you agree, but I just thought the standard of passing was, was poor from, from England's, you know, previous good standards. I thought, you know, I'm not sure that basically, you know, Phil Neville you know, got his tactics right. He tried to be bold, tried to be creative. It didn't quite work. And then the penalty, you know, farce was... I did think it was a bit of a farce, really. But I know that, obviously, he held up there. Steph Horton as being the second-best, you know, penalty taker within the group. I, it, was just, it was just so disappointing for me. I do think there was a lot of warnings, by the way, about VAR. Mm, uh, I think that, yeah. you know, it's set a template, a very worrying template, but by the way, for, for, for the introduction for, for the Premier League. I thought it was I thought it was actually you know, you could see it from two levels. I thought it was patronising that they sort of almost refined it and changed the rules and went to you know, changed mm. it halfway through the tournament. Would they do that at the men's mm. tournament? I don't think no. so. <clears throat> having, having said that, you could flip it on it on its head and say, do you do you carry on with this ill-informed bad experiment or do you actually change it halfway through? I think they did the better thing because some games were completely run by VAR. The referee was an irrelevance yeah. because every decision was checked. It, so did, it did my head in. It, it really it. did. And I think that's a, it was a bad advert from VAR. And this yeah. is someone who's always been in favour of VAR. I'm not completely convinced I am anymore. But I gen genuinely think that the, it provided a really good advert for the game with with those with those faults, but I do think in the, in the semi final whether that was nerves or simply just being outclassed by what was obviously the very very best team in the tournament in the world, USA. I, I don't quite know, but England fell well short. I thought of of their you know previous standards in the mm. semi final. Is that fair? Do you think, Rich? <clears throat> in terms of England? Yeah. Yeah, I mean. We had these discussions a lot, and I'm sure you guys do when you go to the men's tournaments as well. Every day you talk about England, even if England aren't playing. So I thought there were cracks all through the tournament in terms of the way they played. The, the, the defence didn't look organised. They didn't look well protected by the midfield. And we were kind of getting away with it. You know, Japan <clears> created a lot of chances. Even Cameroon created a lot of chances. Norway created a lot of chances. And every game, even though we were keeping clean sheets, she said, we can't keep getting away with this. And, and obviously against the US... We didn't. And then even against Sweden, you know, every goal we conceded, you could sort of, not to discredit the opponent, but you could put it down to our negligence at the back. And then, you know, what John said about the semi-final, I mean, we were staggered that he changed his formation, that he has stuck to. He said all through the tournament <clears throat> was non-negotiable. He went 4-4-2 against probably the best midfield three in the entire world. And you just think, you're asking, and we got overrun in that game from minute one. Um and the fact we actually got to a point where it was 2-1 and we had a penalty with five minutes to go was amazing, really, because we shouldn't have been in it. Um, mm. And then, yeah, it caught up with us again on, on Saturday. We just didn't look, didn't look organised. The defence didn't look, didn't look like they knew what they were doing. Clearances were rash. And, and that's been a theme throughout Phil Neville's tenure so far. The football's better. He, he wants to get the ball down. He wants to play. And when we do attack, the goals have been great. Some of the goals have been fantastic, but... There needs to be some changes, whether it's tactical or personnel or both, um, at the other end for us to win a tournament because the way England defended in that World Cup, they're not going to win a tournament. Mm. What's your report card on Phil Neville, the coach? Oh, seven out of ten. I mean, a great great figurehead. I thought he, 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 he presented a fantastic face in terms of the cameras and all that sort of stuff, which is very, very important. He engaged so many people back home. Um, he plainly has got a better style of, of football. Um, I did, I, I maybe compared it to 2007. I, I covered the Women's World Cup then under Hope Powell. Completely different style of football now and a completely different discourse. So it's great that we're kind of at a stage of really questioning the football and the tactical decisions. 
um, in back in 2007, there was just an acceptance that England had done jolly well to get the second round. They got beaten by the USA then. And I think hope was questioned once about the football and, and bristled at it. And it was almost felt that, you know, we, we can't really have this debate now. It's, it, you know, now, now we're able to sort of break things down a bit better. And, and, and yes, why you went to 4-4-2, I'm not entirely... Not entirely sure, mate. I, mean, I don't know what he said about it, Rich, but it seemed a very odd decision. Yeah, he didn't say a lot. I mean, I think he put Rachel Daly in on the right wing. I think mm. to counter Megan Rapino, yeah. who, who had been, and then obviously, unfortunately for Phil, <laughs> she was injured. <laughs> yeah. um, so it didn't work. And he put Nikita Paris up top alongside Alan White, but it just didn't work because mm. you know, it, it, in a way, it was sensible. You know, Nikita Paris has played as a striker all year. She hadn't had a great tournament really playing out wide. Um, and Rich Daly will run all day long, you know, so if you want to counter that side, it was the perfect move, but it left as a player thin in the middle, and against the US, you just can't do it. Seemed to inhibit Lucy Bronze as well, didn't it? Yeah, I, I think Rich was almost sort of sat on top of her so much because mm. we were getting pinned back, Lucy couldn't... Re Lucy started a lot of times as well running into the midfield as well and trying to run through the middle, and, which is all well and good, but if you lose it... Mm. You, you're in trouble. So I think that it's all those kind of things now you have to... You've got to have some flexibility. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a system and saying, right, this is my form. But, you know, for certain... If you're going to make changes, they've got to be ones that are going to work. And if Megan Rapino had played, would it have played out any different? I doubt it, because they won the midfield battle and, and they were always going to. As soon as we saw the team sheets, we knew they were always going to. Mm. If you look at you know, where we are at the moment, John, who are the the stars who will help to market the game that emerged in the tournament or basically, you know, someone who maybe hadn't had any background in, in the women's game would be taken by, you know, an Ellen White or whoever it would be. Who are the players that you would look to if you're running the game to actually promote the game? Oh, well, I think, that for me, the one and outstanding, the only question is, like, whether now her, her move, it will slightly inhibit that, is Nikita Paris. Mm -hmm. I just think she's basically got... She's she in my view, she has got everything about, you know, sort of the, the, she could be the women's version of Raheem Sterling, mm. basically. Mm. I think the way that she um, you know, speaks, she's got raw enthusiasm, she can be a, a I think a trailblazer, a leader, her background, what she's done off the pitch, the way she cares about the game, the way that she thinks about the game, the way that she's so enthusiastic about trying to bring through a new generation. <coughs> I think she's absolutely got everything, Nikita Paris. She, in my view, should be the kind of the, the poster girl, if you like, for, for the next generation. Listen, when I say, you know, I don't know whether the, sort of the move will impinge mm. upon that purely and simply, because obviously she won't be around to kind of her yeah. move now to Lyon means that she won't be part of the Women's Super League. But I don't think that necessarily affects when, when you consider that basically David Beckham was for years and years kind of, you know, not, not in the Premier League, but was kind of you know, the poster boy for English football. But I just think that, for, you know, I mean, watching watching the game, uh, you know, with my daughters at home, for example, it's just something that they're going to latch on to because yeah. she's exciting, she's entertaining. You know, as I say, she speaks really well. She, she'll have an affinity with, with the next generation, I think, that, that you know, <coughs> they, they will relate to her, I think, in, a, in you know, in such a in such a positive way. I mean, listen, we all, we, we all always love a, a sort of a kind of a, you know, a skillful forward mm. more than Steph Horton's a brilliant advert for the, for the game. Mm. We understand that. But it's just, it's always going to be about the glamour <laughs> style of a forward, isn't it? Mm. That's life it is across in any kind of, I think, mm. any football. But she's definitely got that pizzazz about her that basically she can attract the next generation, in my view. She should be absolutely used... Um, for all all her worth, really, and, and basically in all her qualities in trying to bring in the, a, a new generation of of England fan moving forward. Mm. But to John's point, Rich, yeah. Nikita Paris going to to Lyon. Is he Christiansen's there? Lucy Bronze is there. They've got financial clout. You know, they're perennial champions, league winners. Is there a danger because of the projection some of these girls have had in the last month? Leon or maybe a German club would actually come in and try and take players away from the Women's Super League. Yeah, they will. And we've seen it, as you said before, with Lucy. Um, Tony Duggan went to Barcelona. 
even players like Mary Earps, you know, his third choice goalkeeper for England went off to Wolfsburg, you know, who were one of the best teams in Europe. So we are still catching up financially. You know, this league has only been going eight years and it's only been fully professional for a season, you know, where every single team has been full time. So we are still behind the, you know, we're way behind the Leons and the Wolfsburgs and the PSGs and, and the American leagues. And I think people sometimes forget that, you know, despite the fact we've got the names, we've got the Chelsea's, we've got the Arsenal's and the Manchester teams now at the top, we are way behind them um, in terms of the, the finances. So it's up to the clubs to commit. Now, you know, they've all got the money. Arsenal, Chelsea and the Manchester, they've got the money and Tottenham have got the money to, to match what Leon do and, and go past them. So it's a case of, comes back to what I said earlier, the will has to be there now. You know, Manchester City don't need to lose Nikita Paris, to lose Lucy Bronze, to lose Tony Duggan. They can keep them. It's, it's about... I mean, look, they're, they're hindered slightly by the salary cap and you can only spend a certain amount of, of your turnover on wages. Whether that has to change or not, I don't know, because you don't then want it going like the Premier League where you're getting ridiculous, but you, you want the players also to earn a good living and you don't want them to have to go to Lyon to do that, where they get paid very, very well. So it's a difficult one. It's kind of a catch-22 situation in that you, you do want them to earn a living and, and get that money, but you don't want it to go mm. sort of as the Premier League has gone. Because there is a reality check that we need here, isn't there, Johnny? If you look at Jelly Flarty, captain of the West Ham team in the mm. FA Cup final, she hasn't had a sponsor yeah. for 13 years. She hasn't got a boot sponsor. Yeah. That's the reality for most of, the, most of the, the players now, isn't it? It still is, and um, I think that's where intervention is, is, is needed. Um, I think if, you know... I was looking at Premier League clubs spent £260 million on agent fees last year. Now, Manchester City, I think we might agree, are the, the model at the moment for the women's game. Got their own little stadium. Um, it's, it's a fantastic setup. The coaching's very good. Uh, they attract, tend to attract the best players at the moment, the younger players, certainly. Um, and they spend money on it. Now, they lost, I think, a million pounds last year on their women's team. But that's not a massive commitment if you think that a club's willing to spend on average a Premier League club will spend 13 or 14 million pounds on agent fees now maybe there needs to be something like a levy where Premier League clubs part of being part of the Premier League is you commit to a certain amount of funding to your women's team I think it would be a drop in the ocean for them I also think that if if they spent the money they might lose it on the balance sheet but if you regard it as an investment it's probably an investment that would pay off commercially in terms of social capital over the years, um, in five, ten years, I'm sure the money will start to come back in the form of um, whether it's the women's game has grown enough to get a better TV deal or whether it's simply, as Man City partly look at it, if you can have women's stars on your billboards wearing Manchester City apparel, then women are going to buy it more sort of more likely than if it's just men's stars. And that's, that's quite a commercial but sophisticated way to look at it. There's, there's many reasons to spend that money and it wouldn't be a lot of money for them to have to spend. Um, and if, if, if then money going into women players can increase across the board, that helps. And then perhaps you have to look at something like a designated player system to keep the salary cap but do what they do in America and give clubs the opportunity to maybe have one or two stars. Like a sort of franchise player. Yeah, why not? Why not? I mean, there's a lot of different things that, that could be done to, to grow the game. I think, as I said earlier, just sort of trying to expect it to be the Premier League straight away won't work. But if specific solutions to the women's game can be found and clubs maybe can be forced at this stage to spend a bit of money on it, mm. it might get somewhere. I, I think what is really positive is that basically we have had, just in the Women's Super League and the season just mm. gone, one of the best title races for yeah. quite some time. So basically, you've, you know, you've had the sort of a three-way battle between Arsenal, Man City and Chelsea. Arsenal, frankly, were, were, were the underdogs. You know, kind of, you know, the, the, the manager there, Joe Montenero, Montenero has really been absolutely fantastic. You know, quite rightly won, you know, manager of the year. And um, it, it has been a, a revelation, frankly, in, in the way that he's coached and, and put in together a team despite sort of major injuries in the squad and 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 to to have that sort of success is great and but then that's a real sort of kind of clash between two sort of kind of what you could perceive as sort of two giants and then man city the sort of the strength of that and it's a great opportunity to kind of you know 
sell that and build on yeah. that. Uh, absolutely, yeah. United coming through, Tottenham coming through, basically, and you know, trying to make it as sort of powerhouses mm. of English football, you know. And I totally agree with that. Mm. I mean, I, you know, having seen and 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 you know, been part of some of the figures around what the earnings are, it, it's a million miles away. Mm. And I, I guess people, I think, would would be surprised. I think who, who perhaps don't know sort of the figures about sort of kind of, you know, what English teams com pay compared to, to Lyon. It's a completely different ball game. Mm. And it's it's no wonder that basically players would go abroad to Lyon. And it's about time that we listen to people. There's a lot of people in the women's game talking about equal pay. Obviously, mm. that's, you know, going to be Great some chant. way off. Great chant in the final. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just, it's, it's, just a long, it's just a long way off. But we've got to have some sort of degree of, of, of mm. parity and level footing, I think, to, to make the women's game ultimately work. Yeah, and also, you know, there has to be a degree of self-promotion here, doesn't there, Rich? Now, you know, my experience of the women's game is that Arsenal, in terms of you know, their, their media relations, are, are brilliant. Emma Hayes is compelling. I get the sense, though, that not all clubs are as good as um, maybe Arsenal, Chelsea, City, perhaps. Mm. Why do, does the women's game need to commit to actually being more open and basically open the doors? It does in many ways, I guess. I think I suppose you always say it starts from the top, doesn't it? You know, if you don't show interest at the top, other people are not going to show interest, and I, I just don't think. Coming back to what I said earlier about the promotion of the World Cup in France, you just always think you can do more, you know. You walk around Paris or you walk around Lyon, you know, Lyon hosted the two semi-finals and the final. There might have been a few banners mm. somewhere. You would go to Valenciennes or Le Havre, small towns, there was, you know, there was things everywhere. There was stickers on the roads with, you know, arrows to where the stadium was and things like that. And they made a real effort to get people involved. And the atmosphere in Le Havre for the England match against Argentina was great because there was so many... In Nice, beautiful place... Mm. Great Stadium was three quarters empty because they just didn't do anything to, to promote it. And then the third place playoff was back there as well, which was bizarre um, <laughs> for some reason. So, yeah, clubs can do a lot more, um, whether it's down to resources, lack of staff, I don't need you know, the, the men's side. I'm sure you guys know at the top club, we've got so many media people. Mm. It's at, at the top WSL, it's probably two people. Mm. Um, and again, in terms of the, the, the stadiums, you know, People are talking about the Manchester derby and being at the Etihad, but I sort of like to see it be at the CFA just to mm. see, can we, you know, if we can't fill a 7,000-seater stadium for the Manchester derby on the first day of the season when there's no men's games, we've got a big problem there. Mm. If you go to the Etihad and get 20,000, OK, it's good, but it's disproportionate to what you would get at the stadium they'll play out the rest of the mm. season. I'd kind of rather it be there to say... If we're still only getting 3,000 tops, 4,000 tops in that scenario, you know, you don't need you smack it in the face to notice that something's not right and we're not doing enough because you should be able to fill a 7,000-seater stadium for the first ever women's Manchester derby on a Saturday afternoon when there's no men's games. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about coaching because, you know, you mentioned John Montemaro, um, John uh, Arsenal, compelling talker about the game. I mentioned Emma at Chelsea. In that World Cup, there were only nine of the coaches who were female. Yeah. Now, OK, there were two in the final. Um, I see signs of younger coaches, female coaches working in men's academies. Um, do we need to almost nurture a new generation of female coaches? So, in other words, does the FA need to do their job yeah. in developing them? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, and there's probably an opportunity with the generation, the Karen Carneys and so on, that are just going to start retiring to do what they've done in the men's game and do what they've done with Phil Neville and try and pick up the the top former players and maybe maybe fast-track them and give them as much support as, as possible. One thing that was gratifying about the Women's World Cup was that the, the best coach was a woman, was Jill Ellis, wasn't it? So, mm -hmm. um, And perhaps, you've, you know, Emma Hayes' example can she can become a real ambassador, as well as the players, as well as Nikita Paris. Mm. You know, her, her, her standards have been so high and her standards when, when she talks about the game and, and, and writes about the game are, are, are incredibly high as well. She's someone you want to listen to a lot. So there are standard bearers there, but undoubtedly, and undoubtedly there has to be a change in the situation where, you know, there are still so many 
men's coach, and of course there should be opportunities for men's coaches as male coaches as well, mm-hmm. as there should be for female coaches to go into the men's game. But as a starting point, it, you know, it can't be right that the, there aren't more in the uh, in, in the Super League. Mm. Who are the coaches in the women's game, Rich, who you are particularly impressed by? In England or? Yeah. I, I think, obviously, you say Emma Hayes, you know, for what she's done, but I think, you know, at Reading, Kelly Chambers, um, they, they were in WSL2 part-time. Kelly got them up, she got them promoted, she kept them up, you know, as a part-time team, and now they are solidly a top five, top six team. Tanya Rocks to be at Bristol. Very, you know, Bristol were, apart from Yeovil, rock bottom the season before last, and, and she turned them around to a top-half team last year. But I think actually on the wider point of female coaching, I think it's actually the one thing I'd kind of credit the FA with a little bit because they said, you know, they've, they've been very clear they want to promote them. And Phil Neville, to be fair, said the same. You know, he as soon as he came in, he told them he wanted to sort of, you know, give female coaches a chance. He brought Casey Stoney in. Obviously, she moved on. He's brought Beverly Priestman in. But throughout the age groups now, the 21s with more Marley, who's been around the setup for decades... Rianne Skinner's going to take her under-19s out to Scotland next week for their Euros. And then further down, the 18s and the 17s are, are coached by female coaches too. And the FA actually had a lot of the, the female coaches out in France, um, going to some of the games, doing courses, mainly the championship managers. But Vicky Jepson was there as the Liverpool manager, Gemma Donnelly from Blackburn, Carla Ward from Sheffield United... Um, Gemma Davis from Aston. It's a bit all the coaches who weren't doing media, basically, which was Emma Hayes and, and Casey Stutt. They were all out in France for the first couple of weeks, going to the games and, and getting on these courses. I think the FA are actually doing a lot to, to help. And I know from speaking to one or two of them, they did actually say it was a very invaluable experience to be out there. That's great to hear. So I suppose a seamless transition, John, to the men's game. <laughs> Coaching uh, Chelsea, Frank Lampard. Yeah. Good choice. The obvious choice and a really good choice. Yeah, I do think it's a gamble. I really do. I think he's because um, he's only been in the in, you know in the game five minutes, twelve months. So at Derby, and you know why has he been brought in? He's been brought in because of his legendary status at Stamford Bridge, um, and I guess also sort of parallels there that basically he did try and champion some younger players, particularly the Loneys at Derby. Um, so he's certainly going to be asked. To, to do that, to bring through some of the kids um, and give them a platform in the absence of big signings this summer simply because of the two-window transfer ban. I think the biggest thing for me is that that Chelsea have had a bit of a disconnect in the last couple of years. And I think Antonio Conte was part of that even really with the dressing room. So as well as he did in in, in his remarkable achievement in his first season, the kind of the meltdown that he had after that, I think there was a real, I think, problem and issue, standoffish thing really between the sort of the management, the hierarchy, and the squad and the players, which I think, particularly in the absence of Roman Abramovich, who who, who wasn't in evidence, let's be honest, so much. I think he's been an amazing figure for, for Chelsea Football Club, but he just wasn't there. And that wasn't something that was that was cured in any way by Maurizio Sarri. I don't think the players took to him. And I still would argue that Sarri had a had a remarkable um, season because finishing third, <laughs> getting them back in the Champions League, no mean feat, by the way, um, and winning European trophy. Wow. What you know, most people would stand, you know, would, would like that. But it was his style of play, it was Sarri ball, the regimented substitutions. And plus on top of that, there was just this this terrible standoffish thing be- between Sari and the fans. From day one, he wasn't bothered about the fans. He didn't say the right things to the fans. When when basically the fans were unhappy, you've got murmurings that basically if, if he doesn't sort of change this, disconnect this discord between the, um, the, the, the supporters and, and the team, then there's going to be trouble at the end of the season. And sure enough, there was. And Sari just clearly wasn't worried about it. He just wasn't. And I think that you've got there Frank Lampard charged with trying to keep Chelsea competitive because I think that that will be his his prerequisite. But not just that. It will be about trying to get the fans on side and I think he immediately goes in with a lot of credit in the bank from that Chelsea legendary status. But also trying to sort of 
get get the dressing room back in unison because there's been so many breakdowns in in relationships whether that's you know Diego Costa's goodbye Morata not working you know some of the players you know not not feeling as if like Christensen is a great example you know from my perspective I don't think he perhaps feels that he was given enough you know opportunities let alone Hudson Odoi mm. so I just think that Lampard is there for many reasons there's so much pressure on his shoulders so much to do but I do think they've got the perfect figure that can kind of unify that club again and it needs a lot of uniting I think across all levels and it'll need patience which is not a word you usually apply to Chelsea is it really um, <laughs> in that sense well one of the great um, uh, characteristics of Frank Lampard is his emotional intelligence it always yeah. seems to be <clears throat> you know he's obviously a very well honed football man but he, yeah. he relates to people on a human level is that important and do you think Chelsea will give him time to make you know, incremental games over two or maybe three seasons? Well, the, the emotional intelligence is more important than ever, definitely. Firstly, because of the connection, this problem that John's talking about, he needs to be able to very quickly connect the fans in the dressing room. But I, I, think he, I think he will. I think if you also look at the fact that it will be a younger Chelsea and the brief there is to specifically to start using the fruits of the academy and square the circle for Chelsea, where they've, you know, they've been the most successful senior team for 15 years, if you look at just trophies, and the most successful academy, but the two have never met in the middle. So that's his brief. But if we're talking about emotional intelligence and a way of managing, that particularly applies to the younger generation of players. And Frank has talked quite a lot about um, Pochettino and his admiration for Pochettino. He, he talked about that you know, two or three years ago when he was starting his coaching journey. And Pochettino has done so well with younger players because he's realised, or, or it's just part of his makeup that you have to you connect with a person, you bind the person, you spend a lot of time on the human side of things in a way that the previous generation of footballers didn't want or, or, or need. Um, he's got all the tools. That the, the million dollar question is, is, is the second one you asked, Mike, which is do Chelsea give him the time to follow a process? Because none of, none of those things we've talked about is going to be a, a quick scenario. Um, and that is the, the big unquantifiable with, with Chelsea, really. Definitely, it was unveiling. You got the sense of the club, right? We're definitely we're going for it. We're, you know, everyone was in attendance. Bruce Buck, Marina was there. Petr Cech was there. It was like the club's unified. We're really going to get behind this new era, and, and I really hope that they do. And I'll sus suspend disbelief and say, right, you know, they are going to. But we need to see it from Chelsea. Let's let's be honest. Mm. We, we need we need to see a manager being given time, and and maybe this will be the one. But mm. I can't I can't bet on it. Mm. Great thing, I think, though, Rich, is first game of the season, you've got an obvious narrative, haven't you? Ole Gunnar Solskjaer on one side, Frank Lampard on the other. It looks like there's an accent on youth uh, from both clubs now. Um, what are you looking? For, what would you look for as a football fan from a game like that? You've got two clubs at completely, they're, they're almost like the same crossroads, aren't they? Yeah, I think there'd be more pressure on Man United just because Solskjaer's been there a little bit now. It started so well and then sort of ended so badly last season. Um, if you know if Chelsea lost that game, you wouldn't be massively surprised. You know, it's at Old Trafford. It's Frank Lampard's first game. Whereas with Solskjaer, there's a bit more pressure there now. Um, but I like what Solskjaer's doing with the young players. Daniel James has come in. Wan Bizaka's come in. Don't know what else he's going to do. I think there's certainly. It's not going to get fixed in one summer with Manchester United. We've been, but we've been saying that for six years. So, <laughs> um, I, I think with United, you'd be looking at really starting to see what Solskjaer's system is, what his team is, what his philosophy is. And with Lampard, I think it would just be a case of, you know, if you get through it remotely, you know, and, and you can sort of start to see what he's wanting to do, even if you get beat. You know, I don't think anyone's going to criticise him if, if he loses that first game, you know, away at Old Trafford. Whereas with Solskjaer, I think, because he's been there a bit now, you really now want to sort of see in his first full season what path is he going down this year. Mm. You know, they've addressed an obvious weakness at right-back with Wan-Bissaka, as, mm. as Rich said. Um, he's always impressed me when I've seen him for Palace. Uh, is that a calculated gamble, though? Or, you know, can he... It's the old story, isn't it? Can he... Can he bear the weight of the shirt? Well, 
I think it's bearing the weight of the shirt, but also the price tag, because whichever way you look at it, he, he has been, he's come to the fore in, in a season, basically. And I must say, I've always thought that um, he was much better going forward. Mm. But it was, it was clear, I think, actually towards the end of the season, indeed the under-21s, his performances now means that he's, he's very difficult to get past defensively as well. So he, he's a really good up-and-coming player. There's no doubt about it. If he carries on this path, he'll be in the England squad. And I guess now, in, in, <laughs> in these sort of days, then £50 million for a full-back mm. is, you know, <laughs> it's small, it's small change. But it's, I, I just think that he... He should sort of typify in the direction that United are, are going. I think Dan James is, is much further down the path, with all, with all due respect. He's surely is a player that they're buying to kind of develop over a period of time. Yeah, give him ten, one ten or games or something. Absolutely, something and like it's like sort that, yeah. of you know sort of press him through. But what I like about it is that you can see you can see a sort of a vision, a direction, and that's young, you know, sort of homegrown, you know, British talent almost. And I just think that basically that gives United, because I think of their traditions and the, the way that the club is structured, I think that will always be important to United fans. I think some, some clubs, you know, just don't care about the nationality as much as United fans, but they will always want that, whether that's through the academy, whether that's through, you know, sort of, you know, uh, developed players from, from, you know, English roots. I just think that's something that United fans will always, and quite admirably so, you know, take particular particular pride in, you know. And I just think it's a really interesting season for United. I'm utterly, utterly convinced that they'll do at least, say, three more. Well, they need yeah. it, to be honest. They really do. Because, you know, the team towards the end of the season was a mess. And Solskjaer, I think, quickly discovered that a lot of the players had just done an upturn in results just to impress him. And as soon as he got the job, more for them, they just switched off. They were a disgrace, I thought, at various times, really let themselves down. I think some of the performances and some of the, you know, some of the players, clearly, you know, as we keep on being reminded by either Paul Bob or his agent, don't particularly want to be there. <laughs> and it's just, it, it's a bit of a mess. And I think Solskjaer has got a huge job in front of him. He is a United legend. But as Frank Lampard is about to discover, yeah. he pretty much admitted last week, legendary status last five minutes and doesn't count for very much unless you get the results. He needs results and quickly. Yeah. What about Pogba, John? Oh. <laughs> Should we just give him, wave him a fond farewell? Um, it's such a difficult one because, yes, he's Manchester United's best player or best outfield player. Um, stats tell you that and, and, and you know, watching them, he's, he's, a, he's a special player, isn't he? But I don't think he's anything like as good as he's built to be, maybe that he thinks he is. And he certainly doesn't bear, for me, and I've watched Manchester United quite closely for, for nearly 20 years, he doesn't bear any comparison to the great players I've had in the past. He's just not at that level. So he's, he's got a status that's, to me, disproportionate to his, his actual product, or his, maybe not his talent, but certainly his, his product. And you then think of... Solskjaer stripping everything back to basics at Manchester United. But one of Fergie's basics was that no player can, can be bigger than the team and that you have to have control if you're the manager over the team and, and no individual can, can threaten that. And, and he would, Fergie would bend for specific players if they were really, really good enough, like Cantona got a bit of leeway, keen at certain points, was allowed to, to have the odd rant before it got too much. Ronaldo as well, when Ronaldo wanted away, Fergie made him a special case. Pogba is not anything like as good as any of those players. And I think, I think if you are stripping Manchester United back to basics, you sell them. Because if you're starting again, yeah, and you're starting with a young team that's coming together, that, 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 that's fighting for the cause, they've got to want to be there, and they've also got to have a focus and, and, and be clear about what they're playing for and where they're going. And that can't be themselves. And that's where Pogba is. So... Long-winded answer, but if Manchester United could get anything like the money that, that they're talking about for them, I think if they get over 100 million, they sell them. I think that solves the problem, solves the problem for Solskjaer. It does deprive them of the <coughs> player, and there's a long way to, to, to go on in terms of getting the playing side up to where it needs to be, but at least politically and in terms of the dressing room, you've, you've made a big start if you do that. Mm. Were you surprised that um, Rashford has you know, got that 
bump a new contract, five years, £200,000 a week. Uh, Rich? I think Manchester United gave themselves the problem, though, when they put Alexis Sanchez mm. on so much money. Because since then, you've had Paul Pogba's kicking up, mm. David De Gea's kicking up, saying, well, hang on a minute, we're, we're contributing a lot <coughs> more than Alexis. Where, why, where's our big, you know, sort of payday? And I think that's been the story of Manchester United for the last six years. They just go on, hand out money. There's no real strategy in... in who they sign or where they go, they just throw money at them, do a bit of promo, mm. stick Alexis in front of a piano, and <laughs> they don't really think about you know what's going to happen down the line because he mm. hasn't. But you know he's a great. But I've seen bits of him in the Copper America this summer. You know he, he he's obviously still got the talent, but players just get put into a team where there's no, you know, there's no idea of what they're doing. You almost feel they're being signed for other reasons, and then the players that are actually playing well like David De Gea, who has saved Manchester United so many times, he's saying, well, you know, where's my money? And Rashford, you know, he's had his moments. Um, I think they wanted to tie him down. You know, he's a homegrown product. He came through the academy. You know, he's sort of... You talked with Sarri about the connection with the mm -hmm. fans that I think Rashford's got. Um, so I think it was important to do it. But, you know, you'll keep having that with Manchester United. More players will say, well, hang on, you know, where's my sort of... Pay? Even under Herrera, who's... Mm -hmm you know, was a squad player really, walked away because they weren't offering him what or what PSG could do. So it, it's that case again of how long does it take to fix everything that's gone wrong at Manchester United over the last six years. Um, and I, I just don't know. I, know. I, I, th I thought Rashford was a really interesting case in point, you know, mm. because I don't know. I mean, listen, as journalists, we all wear different mm. things, right? We all wear different figures. And I thought that the £200,000... If, if it's quite that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think he's, he's actually a realistic figure. Mm -hmm. And so it's just when basically all of a sudden, you know, when, when, when people see and read that basically he's on £350,000 a week, well, that takes it to a whole new level. And I'm not quite mm -hmm. sure that he is at that level, mm -hmm. actually. And I really like the fact that, that basically Man United were clearly putting the squeeze on a player whose contract was running down. Mm. He's a homegrown talent who does have that connection with the players. And frankly, because of Alexis Sanchez's earnings and what David De Gea is asking for and pushing for, then I actually think that Rashford could have played a harder, longer game. Mm. But actually, the reality is that I quite like the fact that he's yeah. put pen to paper and, and then spoken afterwards about the tradition of United and feeling it. Listen, we could talk all day about whether, you know, players are paid too mm. much money. Of course they probably are. But the fact of the matter is that these guys are entertainers. Rashford can easily be Man United's, you know, centre-forward and star player for the next 10 years. He really can be. And he can be an England star. He could play a huge role in, in England winning the World Cup. He really could. Mm. And yet, actually... He signed on the dotted line and said, I really want to do it and I really want to improve United. And I just think that some of the criticism over the last week or so has actually surprised me a bit. Mm. I think mm. that at some point we've got to say, fair play, young English lad, mm. homegrown at United, has signed on. Yeah. I like it. I agree. When, when Marcus Rocco's on 160 grand a week, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're yeah. all worth more than we are, aren't we? Yeah. Including Marcus Rashford. Yeah. <laughs> Including you, John. <laughs> of course. Um, what about, uh, you know, if you, if you look at, uh, you know, someone, you know, like uh, they're linked with Sean Longstaff yeah. at Manchester United, uh, fits that sort of mould, doesn't it? Young, young emerging yeah. player, they can <clears> mould a bit. Are you, Newcastle going to have any players left before the season starts? <laughs> well, the vibes coming out of Newcastle um, at the weekend were that, no, you know, Mike Ashley will make a stand and he'll keep uh, Longstaff because he wants to build a team. I mean, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. I'm sure the right money would, would take him. Um, I, I don't know what's going to happen for Newcastle because without the clout of, of, of Benitez, they're not even going to find it easy to sign players. It looks like they're going to lose Rondon. Go back. He's gone back from his loan spell, but they wanted to take him back. Looks like China for him. With, uh, with Benitez? With Benitez. Uh, I just don't know what kind of Newcastle team you're going to see. and I, I dread to think what the atmosphere is going to be like in the, in the stadium. I think that they've, they've, they're now in a position, funnily enough, where it might cost Mike Ashley a lot more money than it would have done in keeping Benitez, because they're going to have to do something pretty spectacular with, with, with signing a manager that the fans are going to respond to and then probably giving them a few new players to... I mean, Perez is a big loss for them. You know, he, he's, he's not a world beater, but a very valuable player for Newcastle and they'll miss him. Yeah. It's interesting how you can see Leicester beginning to, you know, 
evolve a little bit, can't you? Under under Rogers, it looks like Tielemans is going to go there as well, John. Um, do you expect to see a a push for top four from Leicester? I, I certainly do for top six. I think it's going to be hard for top four. Having said that, I wouldn't rule it out hmm. simply because I just think there's an energy about Leicester which which is typified by their manager. I've always been a big Brendan Rodgers fan. I think he's a really exciting, vibrant young coach who will, you know, garner really good performances and enthusiasm from younger players. I love the way that they're basically they've set about trying to build in a, you know, their, their sort of front forward line. I think is taking really exciting shape. I know sort of Jamie Vardy is the old, <laughs> old sort of stager in there, but he's still got a great energy and a pace and enthusiasm that leads that line well. But I just think that Damari Gray there, you know, Tielemans pushing forward from midfield. You, you, you know, Harvey Barnes last mm. season, I thought, mm, made tremendous. a really really great impression. That the, the, It's interesting, isn't it, what they're, they're potentially going to do or not do with Harry Maguire. You, you look, yeah. Well, and it's just, it, I just think that in, in, in what Leicester are doing there, even if they lose Harry Maguire and they would lose him for 90 million quid, for, for example. That would be a game, this game is gone moment, wouldn't well, it? 90 million pounds for Harry Maguire. Well, it's just basically, you know, I think Man United bought at 50 million pounds last year, didn't they? And mm. in 12 months, he's, he's, you know, his value now has gone up. But if it, it, to 90 million pounds is less to see it. But if, if a club wants to pay that, then that's up to them and that's, mm. their, that, that's their value. I just think that what Leicester are doing means that even if they end up selling Harry Maguire, I still maintain that they can push for, definitely push for top six and arguably make a run at top four. I think that they will play the sort of exciting football, passing and movement, really, you know, fast football, possession football that Rodgers has made, you know, case of his own. And I think there'll be a few other clubs looking at and saying, do you know what, why don't we go for Brendan Rodgers? Because I think he's... You know, I think he's an outstanding young British manager who can take Leicester pl going places. So I think Leicester are really, mm. really exciting. Because Benitez could have gone there, couldn't he? Well, he could, um, but um, I think Leicester have got a, a very intelligent sort of view of how they're going to build, and, and they're building it with with youth and they're building it along a style of play. So I think Brendan suits that that perfectly. And I'm like like Crossy, I'm very excited to see what. Leicester are going to be not not just because it's my local club, but because I think with a summer of, of being actually being able to drill the players and work with them, having already made a very quick impact coming in mid-season, but I think you're going to see more Brendan Rodgers in in, yeah. in Leicester. I think Madison will have a huge season. I hope he does because he was so exciting for the first half of last season, and it tailed off a little bit for him. But he's an enormous talent, and he's something a bit different. Mm. So we're talking about next season. I just want to go down the line. You know, start with you if I could, Rich. If you've got one hope for the next season, which you know in the women's game is a couple of months away, in the men's game it's you know they're, they're all back at pre-season now. Um, if there's one thing you hope for from next season, what would it be? In women's or men's or whatever you want. I think in the women's it's just to see progress, just to see steady progress over the next 12 months leading into Tokyo, um, and to see more promotion of the sport here looking ahead to the Euros, you know, you can't get away from it. It's two years and we will be hosting the European Championships. In the men's, I think we want to see more teams, you know, not just Liverpool and Man City, you know, which was a great title race, but there's no reason Man United, Chelsea, are, you know, they can't be pushing up there. Um, and it would be great to see, you know, three or four teams going for the title this season because they've all got the, the financial clout and the, and the history to do it. So... You know, those two teams, Man City and Liverpool, were fantastic last season. You know, they were both absolutely brilliant. Um, and, yeah, hopefully maybe a, a surprise package like a Leicester or someone, you know, pushing into <coughs> the top four or five. And, and I'd be quite excited to see how Wolves progress this season as well. What about you, John? Well, can I be greedy and mention mm. a couple of things? Because I mm. think, first and foremost, I think that, uh, particularly over the, over the first few weeks of the season, it, VAR is mm. going to absolutely dominate... I don't think we're quite there yet. And if I had to make one wish, it would be for just a level of 
realism about what about what it what it is and it's it's really interesting that basically you know the the, the head of the referees in, in the premier league mike riley is obviously you know and has done and is continuing to make representations mm. to uefa about kind of you know let's let's be realistic about what what var should do for the premier league and indeed english football with this kind of rail back we don't want quite the same threshold on, on, on decisions and, and reviews. Um, they don't want the kind of the <coughs> halfway line, which does definitely cause delays, the offsides, you know, the discrepancies about handballs. I just think that basically this is going to take... I don't personally, I'm a massive VAR fan. I think it's an absolute given. It ha absolutely has to be. But I just, I think it's a shame that, that basically that if we went by UEFA and FIFA's guidelines, if you like, and what I, I, I fab effectively propose, you know, proposing the Premier League is not quite ready for VAR, in my view. So I hope in the in those particularly those crucial first few weeks, when when let's be honest, the, the sort of kind of the fans, the media, and the players, the managers all decide in what they say whether it's going to be a successful or not for that season. Just give it a little bit of patience mm. and time. I hope Mike Riley wins his battle. I think he will on basically what, what is the threshold. And I think we have to have that higher threshold. The other just passing wish is basically to have a little bit of openness. I think we talked about Leicester before. Yeah. I love the Premier League to be a little bit more open. I think that Spurs can have a really interesting summer and maybe, just maybe, give... The top two, I think, will finish one and two in whichever order. A bit of a nudge, a further nudge. I'd like to see that. But I'd also like to see kind of other teams challenging top six. We've mentioned Leicester. I think West Ham are having mm. a really interesting season. Yep. Mm. And I actually think, do you know what? If they, if they could do it, watch out Man United and, mm. and Arsenal, simply because I know West Ham sometimes have their sort of soap operas behind the mm. scenes and, you know, Ornautovic. What can you do with Ornautovic? I think they've done exactly the right thing. Yep. Sell him quickly, move on, and do something else. Mm. But some of their signings so far, I think, have been Four really quite interesting. Very good. You know, very good. A few clubs looked at him, mm. and basically, I think that they've, they've got potential to push on. Some of their signings last summer were really good. Felipe Anderson, you know, case in point. Mm. And, you know, I think Declan Rice... What an example. And I just think there's hopefully a few clubs like that can push on and make the Premier League a bit more interesting mm. as, as a rounded concept. Yeah. What do you think, John? Um, well, with the tartan bonnet on, first of all, <laughs> um, I hope that Scotland somehow qualify for 2020. We've got a chance with the Nations League playoffs or the playoff that that has kind of earned us. I still don't fully understand who we're going to play and how that's going to work. But there is a doomsday scenario for all Scots of part hosting a tournament and not actually being part of it. And it's just the, the, 10 years ago, whatever, five years, whenever, whenever Euro 2020 was enshrined that it was, games were going to be at Hamden, there was a script written then for Scotland that you're not actually going to be there as a team. So I just hope we can somehow avoid that, but it does rather seem our fate. Um, but to kind of agree with, with, with both the lads, it's interesting, we've all sort of thought about the Premier League in terms of openness. I, I, I share those hopes and I hope that the three promoted teams, who I think are tremendously exciting for the league, all three of them have really good seasons. You've got you know Norwich being built along a completely different model with some really exciting young players, the way that they've played last season, great charismatic manager. Um, Stuart Webber as, as, as technical director. I hope that that stays together, that it flourishes. Um, but I think Sheffield United are very interesting. There's a few different tricks they've got, the way they play with their centre-backs. And mm. Chris Wilder combines that with being a bit of an old-school sort of presence. They, they energised um, the place last year and, and, and probably outperformed in the Championship. I hope they go from strength to strength. And then I think Villa being back in the Premier League is just, just great news for, for the Premier League as a whole, a club of that stature, with Dean Smith, with... Jack Grealish and, and the charisma that, that there is there. Um, I think the Premier League's needed a bit of refreshing in the bottom half for, for some time and those three teams give an opportunity to, to do that. And, and with Leicester, West Ham, Watford maybe, Wolves, and if those three teams can do really well, plus Everton resurgent, I mean, the league could just get stronger and stronger. Mm. Well, my message would be to the men in suits, the FA, 
the Premier League, FIFA, UEFA. It makes me nervous when they and their spinners get involved with women's football. It's not a fashion item. It's a serious sport. Let it develop at its own pace. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 